stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. We were committed to the process because the process here is very important. And the process is structured so that at the end of the day, it's a competitive process where we get the best bidder uh, that we will enter into negotiations with for finalization. Having said that, if that agreement cannot be reached, then we will be reaching out to the second place bidder. Okay, so that was the procurement minister, Philomena Tassi, today, explaining uh, why Lockheed Martin, maker of the F-35 fighter jet, was selected as the top bidder and that we will enter final negotiations to buy 88 F-35 fighter jets to replace our aging fleet of CF-18s. Feels like we've been describing that fleet as aging for 20 years or more. In fact, it's been about a quarter of a century that we've been talking about buying new fighter jets. So it's a pox on many homes here, or many governments, uh, that it's taken this long. But I think there's a lot of criticism that falls in the lap of this current government. Because we were close to landing on the F-35s uh, before we had the change in government in 2015. But in 2015, when the liberals took office, they were explicit at the time. We will not buy the F-35s. So we started from scratch a whole new process to select a new fighter jet, a process that initially the Liberals said was going to exclude Lockheed Martin and the F-35. They later relented, allowed Lockheed Martin and the F-35s to be a part of that process, and lo and behold, here we are now, seven years later, now planning to buy the F-35s. Hope is we'll get them in the air by 2025. There's a lot going on, it seems, in 2025. The price tag of trying to keep the uh, CF-18s going through 2025, by the way, that's kept growing over the years. So that's been an additional massive cost. So it feels like this whole thing has been just a, a giant fiasco. And I think it's really unfortunate. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome back to the program here, Richard Shamuka, who's a senior fellow with McDonnell Laurier Institute, specializing in defense policy and defense procurement. Something clearly we're not good at as a country, it feels like. Anyway, Richard, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So just as you kind of digest this news, take a step back and reflect that here we are, 2022, announcing that we're buying F-35 fighter jets. What did you make of it today? It's been 12 years of just, I don't know what to call it. I mean, nothing has really changed in that 12-year span, right? Since 2010, when they first identified the F-35 as an option, the conservative government, uh, basically nothing has changed. And... Yeah, I mean, this just kind of reinforces the decisions that were made way back then. It's just been uh, a decade of politics. Now, certainly there's, you know, if we'd acted sooner, we could have replaced the CF-18 sooner. So there's been the cost of keeping the CF-18s running. But are we going to end up paying a lot more for, for this same plane by delaying the decision as long as we did? No, it, it doesn't really change. Well, there's two parts of that. It has cost. It will cost more. It has costed more because we've had to modernize the CF-18 fleet uh, constantly, like for the last like decade here, in order to ensure that it remains capable, flyable, and whatnot. Right, and that included acquiring some of the uh, the used Australian uh, Hornets to replace our kind of 
aircraft that were um, that were being that were basically out of uh, unable to operate. But the nature of how the nature of the Joint Strike Fighter Partnership, which we're a member of and have been since 2006, basically meant that the cost that we get doesn't really change. And in some ways, it may be slightly cheaper, although that's completely eaten up by the cost of maintaining our CF-18 fleet for this long. Uh, we basically buy the same price as what the U.S. government pays for, and as a result, that cost is basically fixed. So we're not actually paying more okay. uh, for aircraft, but it's, it's you know, we, we're paying more because we're maintain- we push this fleet, the CF-18 fleet for much longer than it should have been. Yeah, but it's, it's just simply a case of, of buying planes that the, the cost goes up. Like if I bought a car 15 years ago, I mean, the same car costs a little bit more now, just the nature of inflation and all of that. But has that really changed much over the years? Um, no. So the, basically the way you would think about it is that right now, for the next couple of years here, uh, the F-35 is being produced at such a scale. It's basically oh. the time when they have, they're building the most of them. Uh, there's a bit of a hiccup this year, but that's, you have to ignore that just because there's uh, some changes in the U.S. budget. But because they're producing so many of these, these years now, the more that they produce, the cheaper they are. It's, it's a bit different than how markets usually operate. Yeah. Uh, so as a result, it's inflation, yes, has taken hold a bit, but that's really, that doesn't really change it that substantially. So in some ways, there's a little bit of a cost savings. That's, that's probably the best way to put it. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Okay. So let's look back over the last seven years here and, and what happened that, that ended up us circling back to, to kind of where we were. So it feels like this was all largely political to say we're not going to buy the F-35s. We're going to start a new process. We're going to look for a different plane. This process won't involve the F-35s. And then it did. And then eventually, this is where we got back to. So what's your understanding, your assessment of, of why we, we took this detour starting in 2015? So I think the best way to explain this is that the answer never changed, but the politics, Canadian politics, kind of had to get to the point. Um, I think one of the problems with that 2010 is that the knowledge around the F-35 in the public and, and to some degree government wasn't fully formed. And there was actually a bit of uncertainty about how much we would pay uh, and how the process to actually acquire the F-35 happened in 2010. And they had an OA, uh, Office of Auditor General. You had a, a also a uh, parliamentary budget officer report that suggested there were going to be much higher in cost than what the government had suggested. And that kind of set up a firestorm. And then you had mm-hmm. in... 20, uh, 2015, you had basically the Liberal government suggest that uh, candidate Trudeau, I should say, she says, I'm never going to buy the F-35. You know, uh, later he would say that it never worked or it hasn't worked or it never will work. That kind of made it to a point where it was untenable for them to actually acquire the F-35. And you also had them sort of stick to a process. Like they we're going to do a process. You heard that today. You heard that today in her interview that says, you know, we need, you know, we had a process, we're going to do it. But the, the way that they implemented that process meant that they really slow rolled it so that it took seven years. Now, I'll give you an example of how other countries have done. Finland, Switzerland, uh, and Poland all did their competitions or analysis in under four years. And they selected the, they selected the F-35, saying the exact same thing as the Canadian government said in 2010 about the lowest cost, the most capability, and the best industrial benefit. So it's, there was a lot of sort of political interference, for lack of a better word, that kind of got us to this uh, to this point today that 
it took seven years from, you know, the Liberal government saying, well, we're going to do something about it to them actually going back to the decision in 2010 to select the F-35. So what the Liberals said at the time, there, there were a couple of claims they made, and this is from their platform. So part of it was about the, the capability of the F-35 itself. They said the primary mission of our fighter aircraft should remain the defense of not North America, not stealth first strike capability. They went on to say, we will instead purchase one of the many lower-priced options that better match Canada's defense needs. So were there lower-priced, better options? Was this the wrong jet for for no. Canada? I mean, clearly they've come to a different no. conclusion, but your thoughts on Absolutely that? Absolutely not. And, that was, and that, that was the reality. That was, in their platform, it, is, it was just incorrect. I mean, and what you had, especially, so when the analysis was done, and I keep going back to 2010, when the analysis was done in 2010, and then they did a subsequent analysis up until 2014, where they almost bought F-35 a second time until it was announced or was leaked publicly in the United States that they were, the, the um, Stephen Harper government was actually going to acquire F-35, and they canceled that purchase. They went to all the manufacturers, and they also had the sort of behind-the-scenes number for what each one cost, and you had analysis done, and they found that it was still less costly to buy a 35. And you'll see a lot on the internet, a lot of sort of discussions that they'll say, oh, well, you know, there's the Gripen and it's a lot cheaper. But when they did actual like-to-like analysis using, you know, the understanding of how much it costs to, you know, staff an aircraft, how much it costs to upgrade the aircraft, how much it costs to do any certain type of mission, they found that the F-35 was the least costly when you kind of factored in all of the costs total. Now, what happened in 2011 was the officer, Office of Auditor General said, well, you only did it for 20 years, not the full life of the aircraft. That would have actually changed the analysis. That would have just probably suggested the F-35 was the same amount, it would have been the same expense as, you know, or would it still be cheaper? But that wasn't really understood to the public, and it wasn't explained to the public effectively. So let's say there's there's no more hiccups here. Uh, we we com- conclude these negotiations successfully. We start receiving F-35s in, in, I guess, three years. We get the CF-18s replaced. What what do we need to learn from this whole fiasco? And, and will governments learn the right lessons here? I think it's, it's a challenge because when we think about defense procurement, this is a really unique area. A lot of, like what I was saying before, how, you know, producing more, having more demand actually decreases cost because you produce more of them. That's actually counterintuitive how we think about market work in general. And because of that, defense procurement is really complex. And a lot of the times the subject matter experts, i.e. people within the military and other departments, actually have a really good handle. And when you ignore their advice, like they did in this case, multiple times, Right, you get into really bad outcomes. Really, the politics here is what caused the problems, right? Is that the perception that this thing was more costly and whatnot, right? And that affected the public debate, but that wasn't true. That wasn't what was actually going on. And I think that as governments go forward, they really need to understand that this is a specialized field. The people who actually are in this area are specialists. Many have worked them for decades, right? And have real unique knowledge, and they can't kind of ignore that or, or kind of set it aside to kind of pursue their own political objectives because it's going to burn them as it did today. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, Richard, appreciate the insight. Much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me.
All the best. Uh, that is uh, Richard Chamuka. He's a senior fellow with the McDonnell Laurier Institute, focusing on defense policy, defense procurement. So, yeah, what a saga this has been. And ultimately, politics came into play here. Maybe it's inevitable when politicians are the ones making these decisions. But this was a real cynical brand of politics. So, as he mentioned, you know, 2010, we were close to buying these, then 2014. There were some questions that arose then about the cost of all of this. And I think the liberals just cynically saw an opportunity here. Let's make this Harper scandal. Let's promise to do something different. And they did. And then I think after they formed government, they realized uh, that they were trapped by their own stupid promise and and allowed this to turn into a mess. So, yeah, we were there. We were so close to finally figuring this out, only to, to squander another seven years. So that's on this government. Like I say, the issues with fighter jets go back quite a ways. And issues with procurement, whether it be submarines, helicopters, that goes back a long time. You know, certainly a lot of it uh, goes back to the 90s and some political decisions, some ill-considered decisions by the liberal government at the time. But yeah, this this was political. This is a mess of this own this government's own making. I don't think there's any getting around that. Oh, wow. That slap caught everyone off guard, especially Chris Rock. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Keep my name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your A tearful Smith returned to the stage later in the broadcast to collect his first Best Actor Oscar for King Richard. He apologized to the Academy, his fellow nominees, but there was no mention of Chris Rock. Smith said just like Richard Williams, the father of tennis greats Serena and Venus Williams, he's a fierce defender of his family. Love will make you do crazy things. The LAPD says it's not looking into this. Rock would have to file a report and want to press charges for anything to move ahead criminally, but so far he has declined to do so. The charge would be misdemeanor battery. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Brickenridge with the afternoons on 770-CHQR. What a moment that was last night. Like, that was a, a cultural touchstone kind of moment. That's the kind of thing that people are going to remember and talk about in 20 years. It's the thing that, you know, for everything Will Smith has done in his career is going to be attached to him from here on out. If you missed it last night, the Nielsen numbers in the U.S. say about 15 million people watched the Oscars last night. That's up from last year, but it's one of the smallest audiences ever. I think a lot of people were hearing about this uh, who were not watching the Oscars, maybe rushed to to flip it on. Uh, So Chris Rock was on stage. Chris Rock was making some jokes, as Chris Rock does, made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. That he looked forward to seeing Jada Pinkett Smith in G.I. Jane 2. Now, it's just a lame kind of joke. G.I. Jane, of course, had Demi Moore, and she had her head shaved for that role. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith also had her head shaved last night, but Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia. So it's kind of an insensitive joke for Chris Rock to make. And after initially seeming like he was playing along by laughing with everybody else, I think Will Smith kind of realized what the joke was all about. 
and decided he would take matters into his own hand. He walked onto the stage and slapped Chris Rock, shocking everybody. A lot of people thought it was all, all the work, all a, all a stage story thing, which it uh, clearly was not. So, yes, it is the moment uh, that certainly people are going to remember from the awards last night. Uh, maybe one of the most memorable uh, Academy Award moments ever, and not in a good way. Uh, joining us for some thoughts uh, out of the gate here this afternoon, very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Barry Hertz, film editor for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com, and he's got a great piece today on uh, the madness from last night. Barry, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I've seen various lists about, you know, the most memorable or controversial Oscar moments from all time, and, you know, there have been some big ones, some obvious ones, but I don't know, nothing like this, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I think this will go down as probably the most infamous uh, moment in Academy history. I mean, you the, the other contenders would be when uh, La La Land was uh, accidentally awarded Best Picture over Moonlight, right. and maybe when uh, Sasheen Littlefeather accepted Marlon Brando's award um, for uh, The Godfather. But this is um, something on a, on a different level. Do we have a clear understanding of of what all happened here? Like a few people have pointed out that you know Will Smith didn't get on stage during the rehearsals. This was not planned between the two, but it would suggest maybe that the joke was was planned or the joke was approved. Like, what do we know about what happened here? Yeah, from my understanding, the joke was actually not ad libbed. It was it was a it was a pre written joke courtesy not of Chris Rock but of the Oscars uh writing team. Um so this is something that uh you know <laughs> even though we're all going after Chris Rock, um or some people are you know, this was material that was handed to him. I'm sure he had maybe approval over what he would say or what he would not say and he could have chosen chosen to do it or not but anyways um this is not a bit um this you know when somebody bum rushes the stage you assume it's choreographed you assume that right. it's all people are in on it but as the confusion kind of kicked in pretty quickly it was very clear that this was a spontaneous um and highly unexpected event now, what about the fallout? I mean, it's from what we've heard today, so Chris Rock doesn't want the police looking into this. He doesn't want this to, to turn into a big legal affair. Apparently, last night I read the Academy was, was trying to prevent people from asking questions about it. They didn't really want it to be a thing. Is everyone just trying to kind of move on from this, if that's at all possible? What are we hearing today about the players involved? Yeah, I mean, it would, um, you know, I, I presume that it would be Chris Rock's uh, imperative to, to file the report and then it would, uh, yeah. um, you know, become an active case. And certainly there's, uh, you know, a good amount of video evidence and number of witnesses. Um, but, um, you know, if he doesn't decide to do anything with it, then it, then it really dies and now becomes a public relations problem um, in addition to what it, a legal one. Um, so the Academy, of course, yeah, they instructed press uh, waiting in the media room not to ask winners about the incident. Um, but of course, you know, as the show saw, you know, you couldn't really concentrate or focus on anything that really came after that moment. Um, so this is really going to define uh, the news cycle, at least for the next few days. And it will be something that's revisited um, anytime the Academy Awards near oh, yeah. um, their annual ceremony. I mean, this is going to live with them um, for quite some time, and it will probably live with Rock and Smith for quite some time as well. Yeah, I would think so. Um, 
You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, Will Smith went on to win the Best Actor Award last night, which just made the night all the more surreal. He was, I mean, tearful, somewhat apologetic, but also a little self-congratulatory. You know, he seemed to admit that he did the wrong thing, but also seemed to suggest that he was doing the right thing by defending mm. his family. What, what did you make of that twist on this whole saga last night when Will Smith won that award and got up on stage again? I mean, it was very um, smartly calculated. Uh, let's say. I mean, you got the you got the audience almost immediately on his side. Although, you know, to, in fairness, the people inside of the theater were entirely shaken and, and confused as to what any kind of reaction should be. Um, but you know, it was essentially a, a five minute long justification for a violent act wrapped up in this kind of self congratulatory spiel that also, you know, really used um, his female co stars and um, the Williams sisters as kind of a human shield for his own bad behavior you know a lot of talk about defending these uh, these girls on set from uh, i don't know what kind of outside malevolent forces and, and acting as a defender of family uh, for honor kind of these very um antiquated notions of uh, masculinity and, and traditional family roles to justify uh, an act of violence that was um you know just kind of um, horrible and uh, ugly to watch play out. Um, so it was a, a kind of a head-spinning few minutes, um, to say yeah. the least. Well, and for me, I mean, I, I was not watching the Oscars. I think it was a, like, a lot of, like, like a lot of people, you know, not familiar with a lot of these movies like the previous year and just kind of disengaged. So first I'd heard about the slap on social media, saw some clips of the slap on social media. And then when I finally turned the television on was when I saw that, oh my God, he just won the best actor award. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to see that, but what does it tell us about, you know, the Oscars as an institution, or maybe it's something more about, maybe about Hollywood itself that, you know, we have record low ratings for the Oscars. Again, as I mentioned, a lot of movies that people haven't seen or haven't even heard of, and yet this can still be a kind of a defining cultural moment coming out of this event. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting tension there. Um, would we, we definitely wouldn't be talking about last night if that didn't happen. Certainly we right. wouldn't be talking about it as much. Certainly the, there were a number of kind of history making, um, you know, events that did happen. You know, the first time a streaming film took best picture, um, lots of uh, diversity in the acting candidates. Um, and there are lots of other like questionable, you know, producer moments of the show that seemed like a little weird and head scratching and might be more talked about if it wasn't for that moment. Um, but I just, I, I guess it proves that, you know, culture loves nothing more than a car crash. Um, and this was everything that that tends to be bewildering, ugly, um, but you can't help but crane your neck and take a look and uh, try to make a, a passing comment on as to what caused it. Well, we'll see what the fallout looks like in the days and weeks ahead here. As mentioned, your latest is up at theglobemanmail.com. Barry, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Barry Hertz, uh, film editor for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. His thoughts on, yeah, kind of a car crash, train wreck, whatever you want to call it, last night at the Academy Awards. And you, when you think about the low ratings and, you know, the fact that people are, are so disengaged because they haven't seen or heard of a lot of these, these uh, movies, I think that lent itself to the theory that this was uh, a ginned-up controversy, this was planned or scripted, they were acting this out maybe as a way of generating controversy. I think people maybe are, are that cynical about about Hollywood or about all of these events. I mean, clearly it was not. 
scripted or planned. Clearly, that was Will Smith deciding in that moment to take matters into his own hands. And it's interesting, as Barry noted, that it, it seems as though someone other than Chris Rock wrote that joke. It was approved to be read. And, and Chris Rock went ahead and did it. I don't know to what extent anybody involved was familiar with why Jada Pinkett Smith had a shaved head. You know, she's talked about her struggles with alopecia. It's a medical condition. And that feels like that's kind of a line. You know, making fun of somebody's medical condition. And then how would you react if that was your spouse or your loved one? You know, if your partner or loved one of yours had just gone through, you know, like chemotherapy and someone made a bald joke, like you'd be pretty upset, understandably so. Would you feel justified in slapping somebody? I mean, that's assault, right? So let's be clear about that. What Will Smith did last night was assault somebody else. But there seems to be this debate happening about to what extent maybe he had it coming. I do wonder if there's more to it than all of this. Uh, you know, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith have had an unusual relationship over the years. Uh, it's also, by the way, not the first time that Chris Rock has made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. You know, he, he cracked a joke, I think it was 2016, when a lot of stars boycotted the Oscars, and he singled her out as somebody who, hey, you weren't really welcome here anyway, so not much of a boycott. So maybe there's some history there. Maybe it's a little bit of, uh, you know, if you watch the video, it seemed like Will Smith kind of laughed at first and then maybe realized it kind of sunk in what the joke was. Maybe he was a little embarrassed and, and acted in, in anger. It, just the fact that somebody would get it in their head, whatever the stage is, the Academy Awards, you know, the House of Commons, <laughs> any kind of big public stage that in front of everybody, you're going to walk up to somebody else and punch them or slap them in the face and then just go sit back down. Man, oh man, it was something. There'll be no stoppage time. What do we call it? A, a metaphorical slap in the face to the global soccer order? Can we go there? Anyway, welcome to this hour, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you. Yeah, that was something cool that happened yesterday. Something that, that we should still talk about. Maybe overshadowed by events later in the day. But it was the perfect setting, a chilly BMO field in Toronto, an opportunity for Canada to clinch a spot at the World Cup set for later this year in Qatar. All they needed was a win or a draw. Well, they got a win. Uh, a big one, 4-0 win over Jamaica yesterday. So Canada is going to be a part of the World Cup of Soccer later this year. The first time since 86, only the second time in this country's history. But this time feels a lot different than 86. Maybe a team then was kind of just happy to be there. Uh, zero goals, zero points in those three games. But this feels like it's different. A different team, a different attitude, different kind of swagger. Canada's not just stumbling into the World Cup here. Canada remains top of its qualifying group, yeah, ahead of the U.S., ahead of Mexico. These perennial 
uh, CONCACAF powerhouses. So it's been quite a ride for this Canadian team and a, a country that's really behind them, as we saw with this packed house at BMO Field yesterday. So quite a moment in Canadian soccer history. Maybe more to come. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist for Post Media, watching it all. Had a great piece uh, today. You can find it at nationalpost.com and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Scott, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Always happy to be here. I mean, you know, this the stage was set. I think everyone was feeling pretty good, feeling pretty confident that Canada could, at the very least, eke out a draw against Jamaica. But still, there were some nerves, right? You're not there until you're there. How would you describe the mood, the atmosphere going into that game yesterday, first of all? Yeah, I think I think uh, confidence was sort of the prevailing uh, sentiment around the BMO field yesterday, both amongst fans and and even amongst you know media, just sort of evaluating Canada's chances, the the reality of the situation was that Canadian team has played very well through this entire qualifying cycle, and the Jamaican team that they were playing has not and didn't have some of their best players even in the lineup. And plus, it was as you mentioned, real cold. <laughs> like, yeah. it was uh, it was it was shockingly cold for late March in Toronto, uh, just between. The temperature and the and the strong wind, so you just kind of felt like this Jamaican team is not going to be up for really doing much of anything, and it provided all the opportunity for Canada to just go out there. I mean, as you said, they only needed a draw, so it was the perfect opportunity for them to just kind of go after a goal, get one in the bag, and then that would pretty much clinch it. And and they were basically all over them from the very start. So. You know, there was a tiny bit of tension when you had that situation of, wow, they're all over them and they're getting all these chances, but they're not converting them into a goal. That's when you start to think, could could this be a Italy, North Macedonia situation? Uh, and then it wasn't. And by the end of the game, it was like, oh, I can't believe anybody would have ever been nervous during this game. But, you know, that's that's just kind of the way sometimes these things play out. Yeah, isn't it funny? I mean, between that, the Edmonton games, and then you had the was the thirty seven degree heat in Haiti. It's one of the quirks of having a global international, you know, uh, qualifying schedule. So the international games are are set for certain periods for everyone everywhere, which means that you've got winter games in Canada, you've got summer games in places like Haiti. So, yeah, we've really yeah. seen it all in this qualifying run in terms of that. For sure, and it's it's worth noting too. Like this one wasn't one where they were trying to get the cold weather advantage, right. like they did with with Edmonton against Mexico in November. This was a, a a situation where because of the schedule, it was Costa Rica, then at home, then back in Panama. They they really only played in Toronto because it was the easiest place to get in and out of in terms of flights to the Caribbean. So uh, it was a fluke that it ended up being this crazy cold weather mm -hmm. situation for them, but it, it really did in the end play to their advantage. So here we are, one more game to go, and uh, Canada remains atop of this qualifying group. Uh, the stumble last week in Costa Rica, the only defeat so far uh, in 13 games for Canada. And, you know, the the style, the swagger we saw yesterday, I mean, you know, it was 2-0 at the half. It could have been like 5 or 6 nothing at the half, the way Canada was flying yesterday. So th this isn't a team, as I said in the introduction, that's just stumbling into the World Cup and happy to be there. Th this feels like something different. It does. It's it's a it's a curious thing because this is a generation of of players that is different than any that 
Canada has tried out there before, just in terms of the fact that they have young attacking talent who are playing in some of the top leagues in the world. Uh, Alphonse Davies obviously yeah. plays at Bayern Munich. Jonathan David plays for the reigning French champions. Um, there are a couple others that that play in, in you know decent, strong club teams, not just. Uh, no offense to Major League Soccer, but not just at home in MLS. Mm-hmm. So you have these these guys who have a pretty good pedigree coming in, and then they've been able to capitalize on it with this team. But having said that, they're they're not. You know, if you put their roster up against the United States or up against Mexico, you would have expected that that those two countries would have been at the top of the qualifying group. So so not only are they kind of a an interesting team to begin with, but they've really played over and above, I think, what anybody would have imagined over this qualifying cycle. I mean, to get not just draws against the United States and Mexico in the United States and Mexico, but then to beat them both on home soil is, is like, it's ludicrous in terms of what this team has normally done. So you have a situation going, my God, they're at the top of the CONCACAF standings. Like, it's unheard of. Uh, I think the most optimistic anybody would have thought would be third or fourth place, more likely fourth, maybe third, if they could sneak past Costa Rica or Panama. And then that, you know, they're in first. They're almost guaranteed to be first, given the events uh, that will play tomorrow night. And then you get into a situation where you're like, well, are they really a first place team? Like, what was the expectation going to be going into Qatar next November? So, that's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out between here and then in terms of presumably they're going to start to play some of these bigger teams in, in warm-up matches and friendlies and all that stuff. And then we'll get a better sense of maybe where they sit relative to some of the soccer powers. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, that, that we're in that conversation is is a fascinating story. I mean, obviously, look, John mm-hmm. Herdman, you know, the, the manager of this, this, uh, this team, he's done amazing things, did so with the women's team, now with the men's team. And here's someone who started off as like an academy coach with a, a lower yep. tier club in England. And look at where he's at. But there's a bigger story here. I mean, maybe MLS is part of that story and, and player development because Canadian kids have played soccer in big numbers for a long time. But something's change something's different now yeah i think i i think that mls is has as a role to play in that development um there are there are yes kids kids have played soccer in canada for you know back back to when i was a kid but we were just farting around because it was cheap and it was something to do and and you didn't have a professional league playing in some cities in this country to look towards now you have not just mls but you have the Canadian Premier League, which launched a couple of years ago, which is a, a tier below, but you know that's also professional soccer, and so you have more of a pipeline now of development. Um, soccer itself, I think, has it's a global sport, but it's much mm-hmm. more available on television now than it was necessarily so you know thirty years ago. So I think all those factors have combined, and the end result is. You have some really good athletes who have decided to become soccer players instead of becoming hockey players or basketball players, and and you see the result like you're seeing now. Obviously, one other thing I should mention too, Robin, is of course it's a very multicultural team. You know, you have oh, yeah, you have yeah. guys who came here as as young kids with parents from their parts of the world seeking a better life, and and I think that's had a major impact on this team as well. 
Yeah, I mean, Alfonso Davies coming here as a refugee, and I mean, you know, he kind of uh, em- embodies that, but you're right. I mean, that's another part of this story, and it's kind of a, a story of Canada in a way. So I think there, there's something cool there. Uh, so as we look ahead to this this tournament in Qatar in November, because you know, <laughs> it'd be too dangerous to have it there this summer, which <laughs> makes you scratch their head as to why it's there at all. That aside, you know, right. it's crazy. I mean, Italy's not going to be there. Canada will. So comprehend mm-hmm. that. But, you know, we're going to be facing potentially some of those big names like, you know, England or Germany or Brazil or Argentina. I mean, it's it's yep. exciting to think, but I don't know. I mean, can Canada do what that 86 team didn't do? Uh, score a goal. Score a goal, <laughs> get a point, uh, uh, maybe win a game. Sure. Score a goal, get, get a draw at least. I mean, you would like to think so, I, I, but as I sort of I, I alluded to it earlier, it's a little hard to know how good this team is. It, was this just a – and this is to take nothing away from them. I think they absolutely would have yeah. qualified in, in any cycle uh, given how well they have played. But, you know, I think it's possible that, that Mexico and the U.S. kind of had down cycles. Um, Costa Rica and Panama certainly did. So – is Canada like going to be able to, if you put them on the field against Germany or Brazil or Belgium or France or Portugal, I make I keep going, uh, are they going to get completely run off the, the pitch or are they going to be able to hold their own for a bit? I honestly don't know that we'll know until we see it happen. I think the thing for Canadian soccer fans who have kind of fallen for this team over the last few months and seen all these great results, the thing to remember is, it's kind of like Canada going into a hockey tournament and playing, you know, Latvia or Italy or France or something like that. And and it's just they might have this Cinderella collection of players who's done something really great. But then when they play Canada in hockey, everybody on the team is better than any one person on the other team. And it's like, you know, they're they're just faster and they're intercepting passes and they can do everything with a puck on their stick and and I, it's entirely possible that we'll see something like that, where all of a sudden these guys who you, know, you consider the Canadian defense mostly plays in MLS uh, and, and lesser leagues, you know, if they're going against some of the best attacking talent in the world, are they going to be a little overwhelmed? Or is the fact that they play a guy like Alfonso Davies or Jonathan David in practice mean that they are used to to playing off against top-end talent now. I, we just don't know. And I think it's going to be the really fascinating part of this whole experience for Canadians who tune in is to, to just find out, well, we've seen them do really well for a year and a half now in this qualifying cycle, and, and what are they going to do when the actual tournament games start and, and they're facing you know, these great teams from all over the world? Well, we look forward to it nonetheless, regardless of how it all plays out. It's been an amazing ride so far. Uh, as mentioned, your latest, nationalpost.com. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thanks, Rob. Have a good one. Cheers. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist for Post Media. Some thoughts on uh, where Canadian soccer is at. And look, I, I think even if they you know, are out in three and... It, it, there's still something to be excited about here. There's still a real foundation for the future. And the opportunity, I mean, Canada already knows it's going to play in the 2026 World Cup because we're going to be one of the hosts. But I think they could do something. I mean, we're not going to have uh, the weather on our side. Uh, Even though it's November, I don't think they they get much in the way of snow in uh, Qatar at that time of year. And probably not a lot of Canadians making the trek to to cheer them on in person. But, yeah, I think on, on that stage in the excitement of the moment, this team could be capable of some surprises. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.